Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan, and I am very happy to welcome back to the program the rock and roll detective himself, Madison's own Jim Birkenstadt, here to talk about his latest book, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. Who really discovered Elvis Presley? What role did the CIA play in the gun attack on Bob Marley and his eventual death from cancer? How seriously did the FBI take its investigation into whether the lyrics to Louie Louie were dirty? Did the Beach Boys steal a song from Charles Manson? And did Bob Dylan really record an album with members of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones? These are just some of the controversies and conspiracy theories Jim Birkenstadt investigates as only he can before providing definitive answers. It's a book he is uniquely qualified to write. He is, after all, the rock and roll detective, LLC, specializing in uncovering the lost histories and solving the mysteries of pop music. And because musicians know and trust him, he has great access to the people who were there when the deals went down. The book is filled with revealing interviews with such legendary musicians as Elvis's late great guitarist, Scotty Moore, drummers Hal Blaine and Jim Keltner, and my old cab-driving colleague, Butch Vig, who also wrote the foreword, and more. And it's not just musicians. This may be the only book which features interviews with Rolling Stone founder Jan Wenner, producer Glyn Johns, disgraced Colonel Oliver North, a sitting federal judge, and even a former CIA agent. Jim, of course, is especially authoritative about the Beatles, serving as historical consultant for Martin Scorsese's HBO Emmy winning film, George Harrison, Living in the Material World, as well as to the estate of George Harrison and the Beatles' Apple Corps. Sharp-eyed viewers will have spotted his name among those thanked in the credits to Peter Jackson's majestic new eight-hour film about the recording of the Beatles' Let It Be album, Get Back. In addition to his new book tour, Jim is currently serving as co-executive producer and script consultant on the feature film adaptation of his book, The Beatle Who Vanished, about the drummer Jimmy Nickel, who at the height of Beatlemania in 1964, filled in for a fortnight when Ringo Starr was filled by tonsillitis just before a world tour. That bestseller has been included in the library and archives of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as have his earlier books, Black Market Beatles, and classic rock albums, Nirvana, Nevermind. He was also a featured expert for several seasons on the Real Channel TV series, Celebrity Legacies and Celebrity Damage Control, and is also now working on the TV adaptation of Case Closed. He lives on the North Side with his wife, Holly Kramer Birkenstadt. Jim was with us last fall to discuss The Beatle Who Vanished, and it is a pleasure to welcome him back to Madison Bookbeat. Thanks very much, Stu. It's a real pleasure and honor to be back on your show again. And I think I'm exhausted just from listening to that introduction. Well, we, we like to let people know the, about the experts that, who, to whom they're listening. What was the genesis for this book? Well, I like the idea that there are, are these lingering mysteries, conspiracies, myths, uh, and mayhem found in the history of rock and roll. And mainly, I would say, in classic rock. You know, I don't think there, I haven't really found any interesting mysteries, say, in the 2000s since we've entered the new century. But um, 
I was always interested in the fact that whether you're watching on TV or whether you read a book or something, there are all these things where they just point out the mysteries. Like, here's a mystery. Who did it? What happened? Why don't we know what happened? And then they go on to the next mystery. So you're always left hanging and you don't know whether this was fact, fiction, conspiracy, or what have you. So um, I used my former tools as a trial attorney because I wanted to solve some of these cases and, and ones that I thought would be interesting to readers uh, who are fans of popular music. So as a trial attorney, um, as you know, Stu, you know, you have to, um, you have to, to study the interviews carefully and look at the, and judge the credibility of the witnesses, whether they're, uh, whether these were the interviews of Sam Phillips talking about discovering Elvis Presley, figuring out whether there are any holes in his quote testimony, or whether it's looking at documents or comparing interviews to actual facts and dates that happened. So I wanted to use those legal skills in order to help me um, serve these mysteries and then to solve them. And why these eight mysteries? Well, I guess because they, I mean, I think I have a list uh, here at home of about maybe 35 popular music mysteries. And in some cases, some mysteries I don't think can be solved because too many people who are eyewitnesses have died. So it's a factor of, are there some people still alive who I can talk to who were there and have never been asked the tough questions? And, you know, I just wanted to find mysteries that interested me. I wanted mysteries that covered a range of decades. So, uh, for example, Louie Louie's in the early 60s, the Wilberry's chapters in the 80s, Bob Marley's in the 70s. Charlie Patton is actually in the late 20s and early 30s. So I just wanted to try to cover some Nirvana in the 90s, wanted to cover something in each decade and something that would appeal to many different generations of pop musical fans. I was going to ask about that Charlie Patton. Actually, we've given away one, one of these. One of the, <laughs> let's, let's just say there, there's, there's a, a great blues story from the 1920s. All, the, the bulk, seven of the chapters are essentially classic rock from El, the discovery of Elvis in 1954 to the recording of Nevermind in 1991. But you do, you do go back 100 years to a mystery of who the masked marvel was in, in this. Why did you want to go that far back for that one chapter? Well, I thought that it was interesting that as far back as the 1920s, the music industry was using pseudonyms for artists and for multiple reasons. And I had seen the use of pseudonyms quite a bit in the late 1960s growing up when we heard about, for example, uh, George Harrison playing on a song with Cream and, and co-writing a song, the song was Badge with Eric Clapton for that album and using the name El Guitar Mysterioso. So I always wondered, you know, what are all these reasons for the pseudonyms? And there are multiple ones in music history. And so I went back to the 20s. I was always fascinated with the early blues 
78 RPM records and things. And, and I found that a um, Wisconsin record company, Paramount Records, was using uh, up to three or four different names for this one blues artist. And I became intrigued by that and wanting to know what, what the reasons were. And so I think that's why I went that far back. Also, in case anybody's, you know, 130, they might <laughs> want to read my book. <laughs> and, and you also address, and I think demolish what was the accepted belief that blues artists who also did some gospel work tried to completely separate their identities and you show and you show that in fact this one blues artist was cross advertising right and, and to me that was fascinating because if you think about it gospel music is religious spiritual uh talks about the lyrics are our morality issues, but then you have a, a blues guy who's drinking and, and uh, marrying multiple wives and, and doing some immoral things. So you almost can understand why uh, two different names might have to be used for that music. But also it was interesting that record labels who were licensing out some of their recordings to other labels could make their catalog look bigger simply by having three or four names for one artist. So it looked like they had more music than they had, more artists than they had. What was the hardest mystery to unravel? Hmm. Let's see. Well, I would say that the um, deal with the devil did did the Beach Boys steal a song from Charles Manson? Um, I went into all of these mysteries with an open mind saying, well, I'll just go wherever the evidence takes me. But sometimes it's finding the evidence that you need to make some sort of determination that's the toughest. Um, I was connected up to a few of the Beach Boys through mutual friends and artists, and they all refused to talk to me. I think. I think everyone out there who was involved with Manson, even in the smallest way, is still afraid of their family. Um, I then uh, asked the manager at the time uh, for the Beach Boys if he would talk to me. And he said, yeah, I'll give you a half an hour for $10,000. And I said, you obviously don't understand the business model of, of nonfiction books. <laughs> Oh, I said, no, I, I can't do that. And I said, I've never paid anyone for an interview. And I, I don't know that ethically I would want to do that because that might influence the outcome of what they have to say. Um, so, you know, I want them to be free to say whatever they witnessed, whatever they know, whatever they understand. So, so I really reached a lot of dead ends. And then I found that there was one person who was, is still alive and was an eyewitness to the alleged transaction over the song between Manson and Dennis Wilson, their drummer. And his name is uh, Greg Jacobson. And I saw something, I couldn't find him anywhere, but I saw something on, uh, and this is kind of a story that will appeal to local music fans. I saw something that said that he had done a project 
with Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters. And of course, uh, knowing Butch Vig for so many years, he's a good friend. Um, many people remember that he had Smart Studios there on East Washington and Baldwin for years where Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana and other bands came. I called him up and said, hey, I need to find this guy in order to really make a dent in solving this mystery. And I gave him the name. He called Taylor Hawkins. Five minutes later, Butch called back and said, here's his phone number. <laughs> and you know, I won't reveal where he lives, but um, I was able to talk to him and gain his trust. And he was, not only was he able to, he's a very bright guy and he understands music publishing and such. He was, he was able to tell me not only <clears throat> what happened during that transaction, but he revealed how he recorded demos on several occasions of Charlie Manson that were funded by Dennis Wilson. And, and for people out there wondering, well, why would they even talk to this guy? This was a year or so before Manson really turned from being sort of a giggly, happy-go-lucky guru into an acid-fueled, psychotic, crazy person who was you know, brainwashing his family to do terrible things uh, based upon what he thought he was hearing on the Beatles' White Album. For those, so that was one person, you know, that I got to, and also Stephen Desper uh, agreed to talk to me, and he had been a uh, a producer engineer who worked at Brian Wilson's home recording studio, and he had he also recorded uh, Charles Manson, so he had a lot to say. For those new to the subject, there, there's no mystery about whether or not Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys had a relationship with Charlie Manson and his family. The, the, the real question is, did the Beach Boys steal a song? And, 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 and it's accepted that a song that Charlie Manson wrote, a version of that appeared on a Beach Boys album. So that, that's always been known. But the question that you examined was, did the Beach Boys actually steal this song? In, right. in a copyright legal copyright. sense. Right, and, exactly. and, and you even got a, a sitting federal judge <laughs> to give yes, you an, an, uh, how did you How did you manage that? Well, uh, I have a copyright attorney in town that assists me on various projects. And I asked him, you know, who do you know who is the, like the supreme expert on copyright law, including, you know, the fact that the law that applied to Manson and Dennis Wilson was not the 1976 copyright that many of us are familiar with. It actually went back to like 1906. And Stu, as you know, as an attorney, the further in time you go back, the shorter contracts and statutes are. They're very, very short in length. And over time, as case law evolves, that causes people to include new and additional things into statutes and into contracts. So very small, tiny little law. And until I met Judge Peterson, who is a federal district chief judge, I think chief of all the judges here in Madison, I, uh, you know, it was very interesting for me to discuss that old law, which he was incredibly familiar with. And, um, have a real discussion about it. And I remember the first thing he said when I got there was, 
hey, on your phone, do you have the, the two songs, the song that Charlie recorded and the song that the Beach Boys uh, later recorded where they changed the name, the lyrics, and a little bit of the arrangement. And I did, I had it on, I downloaded them to Apple iTunes. So it was very interesting for us to sit there and listen back to back to the two songs and then talk about the legal aspects, which I could have gone on and on for pages for, but my editor said, Jim, not everybody's a lawyer. So you're gonna have to boil this all down to one or two pages and put it in you know, language that everyone can understand. So I did solve the mystery and it was, uh, and I, I think I do, uh, with Judge Peterson's help, I've done a good job of making it very easy to understand the outcome. Yeah, and and it and the the details you've got about the relationship. I mean, I I knew the outlines, but the depth of the relationship, especially, you know, Charlie Manson recording at Brian Wilson's home studio. I mean, that's that's an yeah. astonishing image. And as you say, yeah, it's right inside there. Yeah, it's just, that's what it, I try to do. I I try to. Uh, in this case, the devil was in the details. <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally. Yeah, literally. But I, I really like to take you inside, uh, even in the, the case of uh, the FBI versus the Kingsman and, and Louie Louie, I take you into the studio where it was actually recorded. And I talk to the uh, now deceased lead singer, Jack Eli. Um, I like to do that. And in fact, I like to say that you may know the, these stories that I uh, write about, but that's only half the tale because I go into detail that no one has ever done before because you need to do that in order to solve these things once and for all. We're going to get to Louis Louis in a second, but just to wrap up with, with Dennis Wilson, Wilson died in 1983 after years of a ever descending spiral in, in some part exacerbated by his, his guilt over relationship with Manson. If you could have interviewed him for this chapter, what would you have asked him? Wow, that's a good question. Well, I guess I might have, I probably would have had several questions, not just one, but uh, you know, one question would have been, uh, what made you think that you should allow Charles Manson and a bunch of girls who showed up at your house one night, what, what would make you think that you should just live with them for two or three months and let them stay at your home? You know, you let them total your sports car, you gave them clothes, you gave them gold records, you paid for their medicine, uh, their doctor visits, uh, their, you know, what, what was, did you feel maybe guilty about your own wealth and fame and is that what caused you to try to help these people out or was it something else? Another question I might've asked was, you had your own, um, you had your own record label, the Brothers Records, you had a business manager, you had lawyers, you had accountants at that point in time. When you sat down to talk about uh, purchasing a song from Charles Manson, why didn't you think of, of taking that transaction to lawyers uh, and well, first your business manager and see if it was a good idea. And secondly, lawyer to write up some sort of transfer document. Uh, why did you think it was just appropriate to shake hands? 
and and you know things like that and then later once you uh discovered charlie was unraveling and such what what if anything did you try to do to distance yourself from him uh before you found discovered that he had you know murdered sharon tate and the la bianca family things like that what would you have asked well, I'm not. Well, I don't know, but I, I think the answer to all three questions is essentially sex and drugs. I, you're probably right. I mean, that was the impression I got from, you know, the people that I talked to and the, the research and quotes from his own, uh, you know, band members. I think that that, you know, and that was a time that unless you lived during that time, it's sometimes hard to explain how open everyone was and how, you know, people would just drift into other people's homes, like Mama Cass, for example. She sort of had an open house every day of the year and different artists would drift in, including Charles Manson, and and hang out. Now, now see, this is the mystery you've got to solve. Was it at Mama Cass's that Crosby, Stills and Nash first sang together or was it at Joe or was it someplace else? This stills and nash and crosby cannot even agree on this so if you can nail this one down you've got yourself another bestseller i think i think that's another great one and i i did think about that just tangentially during the the uh, writing of this chapter i wondered about that too and you know if you have three people that don't agree and then <laughs> I, I don't know if Joni mitchell would would know or remember but unfortunately mama cass isn't with us anymore were there other witnesses? If it wasn't Mama Cass's, there probably were some other people around who, you know, uh, probably the guy with the, the best memory of that time, I think, is Mickey Dolenz, from what I've seen and read. Hmm. Okay. He was there a lot. We're, we're talking, Jim Birkin said his new book is Mysteries in the Music Case Closed. You talked, you mentioned Louis Louis. One of the most widely known mysteries is. The question, were the lyrics to Louie Louie obscene or just garbled? Give us a sense first of just how seriously the FBI took its investigation into this very pressing question of national security and law enforcement. Well, this is like a this chapter, it reads like a dark comedy, in my opinion. The government really freaked out because an, a, a parent, an angry parent, sent a letter to Robert Kennedy, who at the time was attorney general, claiming that the song was filled with obscenity. Now, I recently talked to Duke Erickson, a local musician and member of Garbage, and he uh, had read the book and such, and he said, I distinctly remember different lyrics than the ones you put in the book about certain students writing in these dirty lyrics. He goes, I had a completely different set of dirty lyrics. He said, everyone in the schoolyard, you know, or in the classroom was passing around their version of dirty lyrics that they thought they were hearing in the song. And he said, I, I find this fascinating because the F, and now it's back to, to my observation, because the FBI, immediately took the word of this angry parent and uh, other college and high school kids who wrote in their, their sets of lyrics. And, you know, if it rhymes well or it sounds right and you listen to the dirty lyrics and you, while you're listening or you read the dirty lyrics while you're listening to the song, it can match up. But 
that's not the test. <laughs> First of all, the test is what do your ears tell you, if anything? And the FBI could never really uh, understand the lyrics, no matter what speed, unintelligible at any speed, you know, was the, was the byline on that, that story. So it was really hilarious the way they went about many times comparing the record in, in a lab with lab coats on to student lyrics. And only a year later did they get the published lyrics and the real lyrics and compare them. And they're like, well, we don't know. Because they, they were really predisposed, especially um, J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director at the time. He really was predisposed to eliminate rock and roll and to eliminate uh, what he thought were filthy lyrics that were contributing to the delinquency of minors in the, in the United States. And he considered the Kingsman band uh, merchants of filth who were corrupting kids. Um, so it was interesting. Even the governor of Indiana never compared the actual published lyrics to the recording. He listened to it. He looked at some student obscene lyrics and then he called the uh, head of the radio association and, and put in really what amounted to an illegal ban uh, under the First Amendment uh, of the playing of the song in the state of Indiana. So it, it's crazy. They didn't, they didn't really do a good, supposedly FBI agents are supposed to be lawyers, but you know they never interviewed um, the key people that, that knew directly about what happened. Which you did. Which I did, yeah. Luckily before they died. Because it seems like whenever I write a book, within a couple of years, a lot of people die. But that's because these <laughs> happened a long time ago. It's not me. <laughs> it sounds like another mystery there, Jim. Why do the people who Jim Birkenstadt talks to die? Uh, now, now, the FBI... This wasn't just a, oh, let's send a couple of agents out on a weekend. They, they spent a lot of money on this investigation, didn't they? Yes. Uh, in, in turn, I calculated that the entire witch hunt, which took over two years, um, cost $62 million in today's tax money. And, and plus just the time and effort of scores of FBI agents all across the country running around trying to find something that wasn't there or, or trying to create something. And, and hundreds of pages, uh, I went through hundreds of pages of the Freedom of Information Act documents um, to really take people inside their silly investigation. And, and yet there was an actual obscenity in the recording, which we cannot say on the air, even during safe harbor time, which they missed. Yes, and we can't say it on Wart. I know that from talking to many <laughs> DJs there. But yes, um, ultimately there was a mistake made by one of the players and uh, he did yell out a, an obscenity, which you can hear if you read my book and find out what what minute it happens in <laughs> on the song. And you also explain why it was that the recording, that the vocal was so garbled. Right, right. 
which yeah. I'll leave that to the reader to find out. But yeah, I talked to the lead singer and said, you know what, how is this recorded? So again, I take you inside the recording studio and I take you to what the what the lead singer and the producer were going through at the time and how the whole band was recorded. And it wasn't it wasn't as technical, as highly technical as recordings are made today. It was it was very simplistic. It was the, the circumstances around the recording and the actual physical reality of the re, of it's we can't even call it a recording studio, but the physical reality of the recording event explains why. The, the, I bet the, it was a warehouse or a garage from the way it was described to me. Yeah. All we'll say is that microphone placement is important when it comes to recording vocals. It is key. <laughs> the, the chapter that was had the greatest revelation to me is the first chapter. It's about a very important topic. That is, who gets credit for discovering Elvis Presley? Because one of the things that everybody knows about the early days of rock and roll is that it was Sam Phillips, owner of Sun Studios, who discovered right. Elvis Presley. But that's not quite the whole story, is it? No, it isn't. Um, if you read any interviews with Sam Phillips, you'll see he always took 100% of the credit for discovering Elvis. And I agree that he does deserve credit for helping launch and discover Elvis Presley. But I found that he did not deserve sole credit as he claimed. Um, and one of the people I talked to for literally on the phone for about three years uh, and scores of hours of, of uh, interviews was Scotty Moore, who was uh, actually recorded there before Elvis even walked in the door with his band, um, Doug Poindexter and the Starlight Ramblers or something like that, Starlight something. Um, so I spent a lot of time with Scotty Moore. It upset him that's, that uh, Sam Phillips had taken sole credit. So that was something I wanted to dig into, um, both based on those interviews and on other research I did and looking in, actually listening to the very earliest recordings of Elvis and also looking at the circumstances of what Sam Phillips said. And then basically, uh, in a way, cross-examining him and finding flaws in his uh, so-called testimony about being the sole person that just didn't match up to reality. And I think that, um, are we still in, this is still uh, Women's Month, is it? Yes. Not? Are we still? Yes. Yeah. So given that we're celebrating Women's Month as we sit here, I found it very interesting that Marion Keisker, who was Sam's assistant, and also a, a real pioneering woman in uh, radio as a DJ and in engineering had a significant role in helping discover Elvis Presley, uh, as well as other people. Um, but it was just interesting to me that Sam often went out of his way in interviews to discount her, yet 
many of her statements to the media right after their first single came out, she explained that she was the first person to record him. And she had, you know, the state of mind knowing that he was just recording a, a disc that would go home with him. It was, it was just something he was doing privately for himself. And she had the state of mind to just quickly grab some old tape and throw it on because she was also really a, uh, a like an A&R person. And she would tell Sam which people who came in the door had some artistic potential. He did look to her for that type of advice. So she wanted to be, have something to be able to play for him, Elvis's voice. That piece of tape was recorded by her and it exists today. And she talked about that when she was doing the rounds of promoting Elvis, which was part of her job once the single came out. Meanwhile, Sam didn't talk about any of this for years and years and years until he decided to sort of create his own spin on, on uh, being the sole person to discover Elvis. So I go through the chapter and, and really look at how he spun the story and where there were holes in his story. Because sometimes, as, as you also know, sometimes when people are making something up, they add some details that are fictional, made up. And later, there are ways that you can poke holes in that. So one of the things Sam said was, well, I used to see uh, Elvis driving up and down the street in his electrical company truck, and he was casing me out before he came in and, and, and talked to me and wanted to record that first time. Except that when, if you look at the date when he recorded that first time, Elvis had not yet become employed by the electrical company. So there was an example of where Sam tried to fabricate something to make himself look good. But in fact, I, I'm able to disprove that story, which again goes to his credibility. The detail you've got about how hard Marion Keisker worked to keep Elvis to, 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 to let Phillips know about Elvis, to remind him of, of Elvis, to, to suggest him, to help th that she was instrumental in getting his, th that first band put together. And, right. and with, without her, it's clear that Phillips never would have heard him. You know, Phillips gets credit for jumping, for running out of the control booth that day when, when the, the band slips into That's All Right. Um, and realizing, oh, my gosh, this is what I've been listening for. But without Marion Keisker, Elvis is never in that position to make right. that recording at all. That's right. Absolutely right. And if Bill Black hadn't started goofing around on bass, Elvis might not have picked up that sort of feel and started singing that song. I mean, there's there's so many interesting factors here. But you're right. Back to Marion Keisker she took the time to write down Elvis's name and number and put it under her desk blotter, as some of us remember doing a hundred years ago before the internet and computers. Uh, and, and she's the one that kept really, to use the term, badgering him. Like, you know, he'd say, oh, here's this uh, demo I heard, but I, you know, maybe someone could sing it. And she'd say, what about that boy with the sideburns? And that, that was how she described Elvis. 
and Scotty Moore sitting around having coffee with Elvis. Uh, I'm sorry, with Sam Phillips. And as soon as he hears about this, his ears perk up because he wanted to do more recording because he realized that if he could record more songs, it might help people want to come to more of their dances with his band. And he didn't really love Doug Poindexter's nasally country vocals. He liked Elvis's, or he would find out that he liked Elvis, Elvis's vocals better. And he just wanted anybody you know, that he could replace Doug Poindexter with. So it's kind of funny uh, when he described that to me. And, and if, in fact, the best evidence in answering a mystery is a spontaneous public statement by one of the principals on that specific point, you have got some pretty good evidence that it was Marion Keisker who was responsible for the birth of Elvis's career. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> to quote Larry David. And, you know, again, you and I are, are both old attorneys and we know what it takes to prove up a case. And, uh, you know, I wanted to find those spontaneous comments. I think the most interesting thing is that when Elvis, you know, you said earlier, without Marion's, you know, talking all the talking him up to Sam, they might not have, he might not have been in the studio later with Scotty and Bill. In the same way, uh, I point to a press conference that I got a hold of where Elvis was uh, about to get out of the army and Marion Keisker had joined the army as well at that time. And he didn't know that. And he saw her while he was doing the press conference and he stopped everything. And he pointed to Marion and said, without this woman, I wouldn't be here right now. You wouldn't be listening to me give a press. No one care, in other words. You know, I'd be a nobody. And so, and then uh, I think, I can't remember whether he or she said, you know, I, I think Marion said, I don't know whether to salute you or. No, he said it to or, her because she was a cat. Yeah, I don't know whether to salute you or give you a hug or something like that. <laughs> So, I mean, for him to make that public outburst, he didn't make any public outbursts like without Sam Phillips, I wouldn't be here. I mean, I couldn't find him. And, and Peter Goralnik, who's done an excellent job of, uh, of capturing Elvis's career. I never saw anything in any of his books. Did, do you think Phillips really believed it was all him or did he know and accept the truth or... or some con or, or, or some amalgam of the two concepts well my thought on it was this was way back in the 50s and there was a lot of male chauvinism going on and i think that he felt i can ease you know i can easily take credit for all this the you know my name is on the record label i'm the one that you know sold the deal over to um RCA and you know he went on to be even bigger and you know I think that he just sort of took it all upon himself didn't want to share and maybe felt it was easy to just say no she in fact he had a quote which I have in the book where he says something like well I don't want to take anything away from Marion she helped me paint the floors and she was a great secretary but she just 
She's just mistaken that she had anything to do with this. So to me, that's a pretty chauvinistic statement. She did help him paint the floor. She helped him, helped him build that studio. Marion Keisker was not just a secretary or someone that helped paint the floor with Sam. She helped really build out that studio. She was the administrator of the company. She was the publicist who would go to the radio stations and, and, and help plug these records. Sam, of course, did that too. She was a, a bona fide recording engineer. And really, I would call her a, a talent scout or A&R person because she recognized people with good voices and people who shouldn't be recording as well, you know, because they were they were recording anything, a birthday, a wedding, uh, someone that just wanted to talk into a microphone and put it on a record. Uh, but she really recognized that Elvis had the type of talent that she knew Sam was looking for. Sam was looking for uh, basically a white man who could sing like a black man. He felt that that would be something that would catch on nationwide. And she felt that Elvis could fit that bill. Did she return to the music industry after the army? I don't think so. I didn't, I didn't uh, go too in depth after that because I really just wanted to cover that very important press conference as it related to the mystery uh, but I don't think she went back into that, into music recording. Well, you you def you certainly s solved that mystery and and definitively case closed. The weirdest story you tackle is that of the Masked Marauders, a supposed supergroup in 1969 said to feature members of the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Bob Dylan. Did people and even music magazines really believe that John, Paul, Mick, Keith and Bob recorded an album together, which they released without putting their names on it? Well, this is interesting because I think you have to, again, I, I take the reader back to the close of the 1960s. You had a lot of weird vibes swirling around at the time. So as background, you know, you had... There was the Rolling Stones Altamont concert where there was a murderer in front of the stage. We had, as we discussed earlier, Charles Manson's Helter Skelter murders that terrified a lot of musicians and entertainers in L.A. At the same time uh, that this story first appeared in Rolling Stone, you had the Paul is Dead rumors and people were worried that Paul McCartney had died and they, these rumors swirled around. So there was a lot of weird stuff going on then, but also 1969, uh, as you will recall, was a signature year for rock and roll music collaborations. And so we had Crosby, Stills and Nash come together and they were called, a, the term became super group whenever you had people from different groups band together to form a new one. We had Blind Faith that was a combination of traffic and cream people and you even had um, things that have now been bootlegged, like Jimi Hendrix uh, jamming with traffic and things like that, that maybe didn't get released. But, but it was a time when rock and rollers wanted to work together 
And in many cases, their record labels did not allow them to collaborate on other albums because I think because lawyers hadn't figured out either how to loan them out legally or record labels wanted to be very exclusive and hang on to their artists and not share them on other people's records. Even uh, George Harrison had that issue when he put together the Traveling Wilburys in the late 80s. And he, he as you, the readers will see in that chapter, he had a very clever way of handling the executives in order for them to allow him and all of them, the Wilburys, to come together and record an album. So when the uh, article came out, it was a review in Rolling Stone. And I, like you mentioned earlier, I interviewed Jan Wenner, which was not an easy thing to do to get a hold of him. Uh, and it was very interesting to learn that he got phone calls from, let's see, from Alan Klein, the Beatles manager at, at the time, after the Mass Marauder story appeared or review. And he got uh, Bob Dylan's manager called him as well. And, and then you had everybody our age, yours and mine, Stu, running to record stores or asking friends at school if they had the album and where was the album. Well, the album didn't exist. And then say, you know, everyone's going, wow, is it possible the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones have recorded the most mind-blowing super group album of all time? Because we, you have to remember, this was before we had the internet, cell phones, any sort of um, modern communication. So it was all really verbal between friends or you'd go to your local record store and ask Dave Benton, hey, Dave, do you have this Mask Marauders album? And at the same time, then a month or two later, the Warner reprise label comes out with this Mask Marauders album. And there's some songs on there one is Cow Pie, that uh, if you listen closely and you're not a Bob Dylan expert, you'd think it's Bob Dylan. There's a song on there called um, uh, something like Can't Get No Nookie, <laughs> and that features uh, a Mick Jagger singing on it. So it's, it's, and what's ironic, I found hilarious that the one guy who didn't have a problem getting any nookie was Mick Jagger at the time. And he's singing about not being able to get any nookie. So, you know, there were clues that, that could have shown people that this was a, a tongue in cheek sort of thing. I don't know where it is, but I actually bought a copy of that so-called album. My copy is in the book. I uh, put the cover picture in the book. The the detail you go into on how the hoax got started is really rounds out the story. I mean, the, the involvement of some of the people who were involved and, and the non-involvement. I mean, Al Cooper didn't want to have anything to do with this, but he fueled the flames by saying no comment when when the media came calling. But the, but the role of Greel Marcus and, and Jan Wenner in, in creating this thing is like, you know, just remarkable that that they start this thing and, and the life it takes. It would be oh, interesting wow. to replicate this hoax today with the digital and the virtual right. world, because you could probably do a deep fake that was very convincing. 
I agree. You could. Yeah, there's there's so much more digital technology now where you could, you know, change voices and, and things and make them sound very accurate and and perpetuate some sort of new hoax. You're right. Yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, I I am always fascinated by these myths and things, especially the ones that were pre-viral internet, uh, because it was all of us just passing the word around at school in those days. Yeah. I mean, do you remember reading those first stories? I'm sure you remember reading those first stories about Paul is dead. I, oh, yeah. I, I vividly, you know, and it's like... Yeah. And, and it even ended up the Paul is dead thing even ended up on the nightly news, you know, yeah. NBC, CBS. And I remember really digging into it and it was, I was talking about it in eighth grade and the social studies teacher overheard me going over all the different clues. And I was, be, I was being a rock and roll detective in eighth grade and not realizing it. And I was discounting many of the clues and explaining why I thought it was that, that it was just a rumor and not true. And next thing you know, the following Monday, I had to stand up in front of the class and present a whole eighth grade presentation as to why the Paul is dead rumor was a hoax. So I guess it's the whole thing bit me early the uh enjoyment of trying to unravel mysteries started at an early age see that would have been a great last chapter sort of a, a coda like like the end on abbey road paul is dead no he's not <laughs> <laughs> i thought because there's been like three or four books about the paul's dead hoax so i thought I don't really think I can do much justice in a chapter when other people have already written about yeah, just, it. Just very short. No, he's not. Just, no, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. That's all, that's all you need to say. No, he's not. Uh, well, next edition of the book, I'm going to add a chapter. And that's all it's going to say. Absolutely. Just a little afterward. Um, but going from a super group with Dylan and Beatles that didn't exist to one that actually did, given your relationship with George Harrison, I imagine the chapter on the mischief and mythology of the traveling Wilburys was probably the most fun to write. I think you're right. It was the most fun. Uh, I was a huge Wilburys fan before I even started to work for George Harrison. And in fact, before I became friends with uh, Jim Keltner, the drummer for the band. But as I did get to know them and, and work with them and become friends with Keltner, and as I really enjoyed the Traveling Wilburys two albums and the, the funny names they gave themselves, I thought it would be a lot of fun to delve into the mythology, the origin of the story, the backstory. Uh, and also because I love um, this concept of musician pseudonyms that I discussed earlier, I thought that the Wilburys were a great springboard for that sort of discussion as well. And in interpreting where they got their funny names from, including even names that Roy Orbison was planning to use, according to his son, Alex, uh, had he lived to record on the second album, which was called Volume Three. <laughs> of course. Now, I, I thought I pretty much knew the story, but the details you've got about exactly how and why they chose those stage names, uh, 
now most people I know still refer to Bob as Lucky, not Boo. I mean, I, th I think most of the people yeah, keep right. the, the volume one names, uh, right. but right. some of the business dealings uh, really gave me new insights, but how on earth did they calculate the distribution of publishing rights down to the hundredth of a percent? Or was that just one of their little jokes? No, I think that, I think that, uh, basically they, they looked at, okay, we just, we just wrote this song and then, okay, we just recorded this song. And what were the very, what, what did, Tom Petty do on this particular song? Well, he came up with two verses or uh, Jeff Lynn came up with this great hooky chorus or so-and-so uh, came up or, you know, so-and-so came up with this great guitar lick that really makes this song go. And I think they just figured it all out. I, as for those tiny fractional things, could have been a lawyer, it could have been them, but I, I, I don't know why it went down to the hundredth uh, of a percentage point, but I did laugh when I saw those numbers because I was able to um, obtain a copy of one of their publishing contracts that had been uh, shown in a, in a memorabilia auction. I think it was one of their little jokes. No, fourteen point seventy three percent of the song. You, <laughs> Bob, you get fourteen point seventy three percent of the song. You may uh, well be right that it was a joke because everything they did was was for laughter. Yeah, and, you know, and, I mean, time in America it was really big for moms to put a little yellow triangle on their car that said "baby on board." <laughs> so that we'd all drive more carefully around their car. And so the, the Wilburys did the same thing that says Wilbury on board. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think traveling Wilburys is a better name than trembling Wilburys. I agree. I agree. But I, I do still love to do the Wilbury twist. So <laughs> are there any controversies or conspiracy theories that you have not been able to answer? that you tried to and, and just ran into too many literal dead, I, wall, dead ends? Yeah, I think one that comes to mind that I looked into <clears throat> was um, when uh, Led Zeppelin had played a concert or two at um, in New York City, and then they were staying at a hotel nearby. And Back then, uh, their manager used to collect all the gate money in cash and carry around a briefcase. And then he would store it in the, those little locking vaults that hotels, many of them used to have, you know, like in the back room behind the wall of the lobby. And uh, one night, you know, all, they went there the next day to leave and all the cash was gone. So I thought, oh, like a a robbery case is interesting as it relates to Led Zeppelin, but the managers died. Um, they're not that, you know, there's nothing that plant or page are going to know about this robbery. You know, they were probably in bed with cute girls and wasted. So they, and they weren't in charge of that sort of thing. So, uh, the police report didn't really go into much, probably because the police thought, oh, you know, these long haired hippies are, you know, crying because they lost some of their money from one night. They're millionaires. So, you know, I think I don't think there was like a real strong 
investigation. You know, obviously now, decades later, the people that work there, I'm sure they don't have any records of the names of those people. It just would have been uh, an enormous task to try to find someone who might know something. I, I, all I learned was that no one drilled open the safe. So that means probably either someone in the band's entourage had a key or someone in the hotel had a key and had knowledge that this cash was there. There's but, a great Bob Dylan anecdote. The, the Zeppelin manager was Peter Grant. And there's a great, uh, there's a great Bob Dylan anecdote where he's at some event and Peter Grant comes up and says, hi, Bob, I'm Peter Grant. I manage Led Zeppelin. And Bob looks up at him and says, I don't come to you with my problems. <laughs> That's a great reply. And on that, I'm afraid our time with Jim Birkenstadt is over. Again, the book is Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. And where can they get the book, Jim? Uh, you can get the book either at my author site, which is three w's.musicmysterybook.com or amazon.com. And I'm hoping to get it into locally into the Mystery to Me bookstore uh, in the near future. And I'm sure if people actually called up or mm -hmm. went online to Mysteries to Me, uh, they do their best to yeah. obtain the book. Please call them and tell them to order my book. And I'd love to do a book signing there as well. Well, it's another good event. Next week on Mass and Book Week, your first week host, George Dreckman, will welcome John Hildebrand for a conversation about his book, Long Way Around. I'll be back on April 25th with local author Patrick McBride to discuss his book, The Luckiest Boy in the World. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored, community radio.